Alright, you primitive screwheads, listen up. Oh my god, I smell shenanigan! I have no idea what's going on, but I am excited! Yeah, baby, yeah! Ooh, ever dance with the devil in the bed? Inconceivable! Cowabunga. I thought this was a party! It's two Nerfskis and a podcast. With Eric and Jeff. Hello, hello. Welcome to Haddonfield, Illinois, aka suburban Southern California. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Two Nerdskis and a Podcast, the one show where two nerdskis come together and talk about everything pop culture and entertainment. Of course, as always, I'm one of your uh, nerdskis. <laughs> this is Eric speaking. And you've reached Jeff. And welcome, everyone, to Horror Month. On two nerdskis and a podcast. We're all month long. We're going to be talking about everything horror. So uh, if you've been paying attention to any part of the show, you'll know that Jeff's Jeff's favorite genre is the horror genre. And ladies and gentlemen, we have finally reached Jeff's real wheelhouse. And so um, I remember when we planned like exactly because i basically let you go to town on this i basically said that, like look you plan out the movies that we're going to discuss um uh you i'll i will just like i'll just like i'll help uh schedule them and whatnot and uh yeah and we'll just get schedule the recordings and we'll get the movies in and here we go from there but yeah no this is uh this is going to be fun because it is the spookiest time of the month um actually what i do want to ask jeff is so it's very clear to me that horror is your favorite genre i would like to then ask why specifically that genre and what what is it about it that is just so appealing to you so i'm just gonna jeff please take it away so i think what made horror such a unique genre to me uh i would say it was definitely when i was growing up and i would i would see certain I actually remember specifically it was this must have been 2003 2004 and I saw just a random commercial for AMC Fright Fest and it was uh it was a commercial for Halloween 4 and I just remember seeing Michael Myers mask and it scared the look of it just scared the piss out of me and the fact that in the scene he was going after a, a kid if you've seen Halloween 4 you, you yeah, you know what's up. Mm-hmm. And I I had so much trouble sleeping and it it gave me so so many nightmares just off this 30 second little commercial and I want to say probably uh less than a year later I it felt like this great challenge I had to overcome. Like I I knew I was scared but yet I still wanted to confront it and it felt like it felt like that one of the felt like any of the Halloween movies would be my rite of passage in becoming a man (laughs) (laughs) and um, Ah. and I'm so ashamed to admit it but uh, I want to say the first Halloween movie I saw in full 
was uh or actually I want to say was I went to Dimple, rest in peace Dimple. Yep. And I got ho- the original Halloween and Halloween Resurrection, which is one of the worst things ever. <laughs> so I've heard. So I've heard. Uh but it was Halloween, the original scared me, but not in the ways I expected. And that was kind of my gateway into exploring horror in a broader sense. You know, it's because it's hard to define horror specifically because there's so many variations and it's just this giant fucking rabbit hole that once you really dive into the genre, you just really get a sense for how much it has to offer right you know because it's you know with action movies and you know comedies you know you have your subgenres for sure but normally you kind of know what you're going to get it, it obviously depends on the movie itself but it's pretty most genres are relatively straightforward but horror i feel is the most unique out of all genres because you can't really lock it down to one simple category. You know, you have, you have creature features, you have uh, atmospheric horror, you have psychological, you have slasher, you have zombies, you have, uh, you know, there's German expressionist horror. There's, uh, there's cases where it mixes genres like evil dead, uh, Evil Dead 2 specifically, I'd say, is one of the prime examples to have horrific images, but also it's really fucking funny. Yes, it and, is. I can and finding, that. And it's about striking that balance where you can really create a unique experience. And I think that's just what always drew me to horror. You, and especially with like, you know, exploitation horror you know like that that's a whole subgenre in itself you know like just look at half of trauma's uh trauma's catalog and there's so many different tones that you can experiment with and even when you have uh even when you have a specific subgenre like let's say zombies there's so much you can do with that you know there's uh, there's zombie comedies. There's found footage, atmospheric thriller zombie thrill uh, zombie films out there. There's, mm-hmm. it's basically just a giant, uh, a giant like mix and match of what you can do. Like it's endless possibilities for creativity. And I've been watching horror movies for well over a decade, uh, and I know for a fact that I've just scratch the surface like it it's horror has spanned through nearly the birth of cinema itself it's always been there in some way shape or form and you know some of the most recognizable figures in all of pop culture are associated with horror you know it's everyone knows dracula everyone knows frankenstein everyone uh you know everyone Pretty much everyone knows Michael Myers, Jason, Freddy, Chucky. Uh, you Pinhead, know, it, Ash, yeah, it, yeah, Pinhead. Exactly. Like it just, even if you've never seen any of those movies, just the image of these figures have 
have left such an impression for so many generations that they will never leave the public consciousness. And that's, that's what I think is the true impact of horror. And uh, I mean, especially the first two I mentioned, you know, uh, Dracula and Frankenstein, you know, uh, you know, it's 2021 right now, which marks the 90th anniversary of, I would say, the godfathers of Halloween. And I, and the fact that you could still go, you know, there's a reason they bring, uh, you know, Frankenberry and Count Chocula back every year because those figures especially have left their mark for countless generations. And the fact that, you know, it's, they've been around, I mean, like there's obviously, there were other, uh, you know, Dracula-esque films prior to prior to the Lugosi version, like you know, there's Nosferatu. Right. And, yeah, that's yeah. There, yeah, there, are, there are other films uh, I think have unfortunately become lost to time. Uh, and there was actually a Frankenstein uh, short film produced by Thomas Edison in 1910. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Thankfully, that that has been found and can be viewed on YouTube. So if you're just curious from a purely historical context, definitely check that out. Like it's only like 12 minutes long, but it's I would say that that's like kind of the precursor to horror in general, at least in the uh, in the popular consensus of of it. And. I mean, yeah, the fact that we're celebrating 90 years of of those two figures. They're not going to they're never going to go away. And. As the decades go on new filmmakers are always going to find ways to innovate and bring, uh, bring horror back in a big way. And it could be, it could be a studio studio release with, uh, you know, with all the funding in the world and it just happens to strike the right chord with people, or it could be paranormal activity that had a $15,000 budget and, managed to gross almost $300 million and spawn a whole franchise and create a new trend of found footage horror, you know, regardless of how you feel, it just, it just goes to show that you have the right idea, the right style and the right people behind the project. It's your wildest fucking expectations can be, can be exceeded. So Mm -hmm. I would I would definitely say even for aspiring filmmakers tapping into the horror genre and having a good understanding of of it can really be a good foot uh, can be a really good foot in the door. You know, that's how we got James Wan, for example. You know, he made he made Saw straight out straight out of college with, uh, you know, with his with his buddy uh, Lee Winnell. And. And look at him now, James Wan's a. There's grossed two films that have grossed a billion dollars, and Lee Winnell made films like Upgrade and uh, The Invisible Man from 2020, both critically acclaimed and hugely successful. So that's all it takes, man. It takes understanding the understanding the genre, having the right idea, put your heart into it, and yeah, that's. Uh, that's my little shtick on sucking horror's dick. 
Well, I guess my my thing with horror, I haven't, I, I haven't really truly been into horror for as long as uh, Jeff has. But um, I mean, I I I wasn't the biggest horror fan. I, I I've said this before several times here on the show, but like you know, over time as my you know taste grew and I went to film school. Um, you know, um, I got into more horror stuff like and I, I've barely scratched the surface in terms of horror films. But like, you know, I love the Evil Dead movies. I think they're excellent. Um, obviously, um, The Exorcist is one of my all time favorite horror films. I don't really look at that as a horror film. I look at I look at it more as a film that's all about the redemption of Father Karras. But we can talk about that another time if it, um, at some point in the future. Um also, um, of course, today's subject, Halloween, you know, it's a classic in the slasher genre. I think it actually, um, well, I mean, well, obviously Psycho jumpstarted the Psycho, I mean, the slasher genre, I think, but it's this movie that really kind of like showcased what exactly makes a slasher. And so let's get right into it, folks. We're here to talk about the classic 1978 classic horror film. Halloween, directed by John Frickin' Carpenter. And if and this is the first John Carpenter movie that we're talking about here on the show. And if you don't know who John Carpenter is, he is one of the best directors, not just in horror, but also I would say in general, because he's directed, you know, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., um, They Live. I wouldn't really highlight Escape from L.A. <laughs> well, I know, but still, like, <laughs> the point is, is like he... He's known for directing movies besides horror. It's just that his horror films tend to be some of the most celebrated. Of course, obviously, The Thing is really great. Um, in Search or uh, in the Mouth of Madness, that movie that movie's underrated as fuck. I, I haven't. I will. I haven't seen the movie, but I will say the opening theme song for the movie <laughs> is some of the most badass music I've heard. By the way, this is what makes John. This is what makes John Carpenter so unique. Easy. He's a writer, director, producer, makes his own fucking film scores. This man is a like a is like a triple threat or a quadruple threat. Like this is a true filmmaker in his element. So like when he does uh, when he does everything for a movie, you can tell that you're going to be in for a pretty good fucking time. Um, and I got into Carpenter late. Um I don't exactly remember the very first Carpenter movie I watched. I actually think it, no, I think it was Escape from New York. Well, I'll, I definitely would love to talk about Escape from New York at some point, but you know, Carpenter has that very unique style, um, low budget, but makes it look like it make he makes it look like it's way bigger than it's supposed to be, and he also knows how to he also knows how to write and direct like effectively. At least until after uh, in the mouth of madness, because I've heard everything else has just been. Eh. But then again, you know, every director, you know, can only be successful or like make good movies for so long. Um, not everyone's like a, a Denis Villeneuve or a Christopher Nolan who keeps like just shitting out bricks of like bricks of gold, if you I will. Well, I, th I think uh, I think it was after he directed uh, Mission to Mars, which was a huge flop. <laughs> I've seen the reviews for that. That's hilarious. Apparently, like the studio 
really battled with him during the production of that. And so after after that came out and shit the bed, essentially, he just said, fuck Hollywood and just kind of left and did his own thing pretty much because he's like, eh, fuck it. I got I got money. I'm just going to play music because he uh, he goes on tour a lot and, you know, he's created his own uh, like his own solo album albums, like not connected to any of his films, just creating music. And I've heard some of his solo work and that shit's solid, man. So I, Dude, it's, his it, music yeah, is it, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. If, if the opportunity ever comes, man, I would love to see John Carpenter play in concert as would I believe me, but yeah, no, I'm very surprised by just, again, this man is highly talented as a filmmaker. And, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Mission to Mars was not the first time he had a fumble with Hollywood. Obviously, the first time would be, I'd say, Escape. No, not Escape. I'd say it was uh, Big Trouble in Little China because that was a 20th Century Fox film and he had a unique vision for it. I mean, it, the vision's there, but, you know, the problem is, is Fox wanted Fox wanted like to do a little bit more or, or something else. Uh, unfortunately, the movie did not was not successful at the box office. It was. It did underperform, unfortunately, but and because of that, John Carpenter went back to his roots and he made um, God, what was that movie? Um, shit, I, I should know this. It was uh, what year did Big Trouble in Little China come out? Was it the early 90s or the late 80s? I want to say um, it was like early 80s. No, late 80s, late, late, late 80s. Let me see. Excuse me, folks. We're going to do some uh, research real quick. <laughs> But no, yeah, Carpenter, yeah, Carpenter is just, you know, I think Carpenter works best when he's not working with a huge budget. I mean, like, you know, some because some of the best movies he's made were not on big budgets. Like, for example, Halloween here only made for about $30,000 to $325,000. It made sixty to $70 million. And then I'm, I think... I'm pretty, and I'm pretty sure that's unadjusted for, uh, for inflation. Yeah. And then I think... Um, Escape to New York was only made on $5 million. And that movie looks like it's at least 30 to 70 million. And it definitely made more than 5 million back. It definitely got its budget back and was successful at the box office. So Car I, again, I think Carpenter works best. I mean, well then again, the thing is also high quality, but um, again, I think he works just best when it's not like, when it's not when the budget isn't too huge, but he still can go all out because then well, the creativity is really on screen. Well, something interesting about Carpenter is with a lot of his movies, uh, a lot of the times they'll they'll come out and it'll get trashed by critics. It'll underperform. And then over time, it just garners a huge cult following. Yeah. By the way, so 1986 was when Big Trouble came out. And it was made for between 19 to 25 million, only made 11.1 million. Yikes. Yeah. But no, again, Carpenter, you know, Carpenter really is like one of the most unique uh, filmmaking visionaries. And it really shows here in the first Halloween film. And so let's let's get right into it. You know, the real big uh, introduction to uh, Michael Myers and of course Laurie Strode um, played excellently by uh, Jamie Lee Curtis we're not saying 
Michael Myers is played by Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> Although imagine how different of a movie that would be. <laughs> what a unique picture I think. Um, but uh, yeah, it, this is um, cause I think this was made after assault on precinct, thir- precinct 13, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think this was technically Carpenter's third feature. Uh, cause he made a, he made a student film. It was Dark Star, right? That was, yeah, yeah he made one. Dark Star. And I think that was, uh, that was for, uh, for school. And then, uh, Assault on Precinct 13. And then I believe it was, uh, Mustafa Akkad who, uh, would essentially become the, the caretaker of the franchise. Cause after, uh, during the development of Halloween four Carpenter, uh, and, uh, and producer Deborah Hill, who, uh, uh, who who played a huge role in developing this uh, this first film too, they um, they pitched uh, they pitched ideas and nothing really got off the ground, and so they basically sold off their uh, their stake in in the franchise. So I want to say it was from Halloween Four up until maybe the 2018 film uh yeah uh carpenter had absolutely he basically washed his hands of of the franchise uh Mm -hmm. and he almost came back to direct halloween h2o because he wanted to work with uh, jamie lee curtis again but uh i think he wanted a higher uh a higher rate because he felt he was kind of screwed over in uh over uh it was like some big payment dispute over uh, over the distribution of the first film uh but yeah long story short carpenter was uh, or no uh fuck i lost my train of thought <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh anyway right. uh akkad wanted to basically had had this idea for uh for uh, for a film that he, he thought he could make on the cheap, you know, guy goes around killing babysitters, and Carpenter was hired on to develop that. Figured, okay, this this should be easy enough, and so he brought his at the time girlfriend, uh, uh, Deborah Hill, on board. They helped get the ball rolling. I think Deborah Hill handled all the dialogue between uh, between all the uh, all the women talking, and Carpenter would son of a bitch <laughs> uh, forgive me folks i worked i worked two jobs leave me alone uh <laughs> then uh this was only shot in 21 days i believe and they uh at the even though this was supposed to be october they were filming it in early spring and so if you if you pay attention, it's very clear that uh, all the trees well, are non-existent. These, yeah. Are these bright green, uh, lovely looking trees? And I think what they actually did uh, for the leaves blowing is they, I think they hand painted a lot of those leaves to actually you know pick up on on camera. So oh, that's interesting. So I, I feel bad for whatever poor production assistant had to had to do that, and. And I think uh, when it came to Dr. Loomis, they initially wanted Peter Cushing. And, uh, but 
this was uh, very are you saying short. Grand Moff Tarkin was almost uh, Doctor Loomis? Well, Grand Moff Tarkin is exactly why he what uh, why he wasn't in it because right mm-hmm. after the insane success of Star Wars, Peter Cushing's fee became way too high. Yeah, that makes sense. Even uh, Christopher Lee was was approached, but uh, the he uh, but he turned it down and would actually later go on to say. Not accepting that role was his biggest regret in his career. And honestly, Donald Pleasance is fucking incredible in uh, in this movie. And I give tremendous respect for him being so loyal to this franchise, even when, as it went on, it would just gradually get shittier and shittier. But Donald Pleasance was, uh, I think he... I think he was looking to uh, looking for college funds for for his his uh, his daughter, I believe. So you know, this was kind of just a nothing role for him at the time. But he really took the material seriously, and he kind of uh, he kind of gave his own unique backstory for uh, for how he he would approach the the character, and you know because. I always find it interesting when these low budget horror movies that become that would later go on to become such classics is they often get a veteran actor or actress on board and it becomes this larger than life success and the uh, the veteran actor or actress is whenever they're interviewed later on they're just like I just need like a fucking car or something I I thought this movie was going to be shit and the prime example is actually Betsy Palmer, who uh, who played a Jason's mom in the first Friday the Thirteenth, she actually not to get too sidetracked, but uh, yeah, she she read the script and thought this is a piece of shit, <laughs> and and only took it because like oh well, they're gonna pay me thirty grand and I just have to work for a weekend. Fuck it, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> And, and it ends she, up becoming like one of the biggest horror movies ever made. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then she's like, uh, before she uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, she uh, she was a frequent contender, or uh, she was a frequent guest in the convention scene. And oh, you know, she, awesome. yeah. she, even though like she she never liked the movie, but she loves <laughs> she loved the fan appreciation for it. And I think. Uh, and I, I always wondered if uh, if Donald Pleasance, uh, hypothetically speaking, if, uh, if the horror convention scene grew uh, grew much larger uh, sooner, I think, think Donald Ple- I think Donald Pleasance would have been uh, would have made uh, would have made the convention scene. I, I can mm-hmm. totally I can totally see him uh, see him doing something like that. Oh, yeah, he in, died in '95. Yeah, yeah, okay. like right after uh, filming of Halloween: Curse of Michael Myers, which, goddamn, the production on that movie was a fucking bonkers. But, so then, well, let's well then. So backing, going back to the production of this. So, from what I see here, so if if, if this is correct, yeah. So like, so like you said, Mustafa Akkad, he wanted Carpenter to direct a movie um, about um. Well, him and Erwin Yablins, I think is his name. They both yes. wanted him to direct a movie about a psycho- a psychotic killer that stalked babysitters. And so the movie was originally going to be titled The Babysitter Murders. Had nothing to do with Halloween. 
Um, and then Yavlin's comes in. He suggests like, you know, how about you set the movie on Halloween night and name it at Halloween? And Carpenter was like, because her Carpenter wanted to just do, from what I understand here, it looks like he just thought it'd just be like a haunted house film. He's like, never Halloween was never the theme in the film when he was coming up with it. So, I mean, kudos then, because then we get, because then it comes down to like how you're going to develop the killer. And so, um, Michael Myers, um, just the just the mask alone. So, fun fact: if you didn't know this, the mask of My- Michael Myers is a repainted William Shatner mask. Um, so who knew that Captain Kirk would eventually become the face? of one of horror's biggest franchises. Yeah. And actually, I often wonder how he feels about that actually. And actually a uh, kind of funny thing about that is, you know, that mask cost them a buck 50 and yes, it was so cheap. And a production designer, Tommy Lee Wallace, who I actually met recently at a convention I went to very nice guy. Uh, he basically just modified it as much as he could without, you know, so that they won't get sued for the use of the mask. So they, uh, you know, they obviously painted it white. They messed up the hair. They enlarged the uh, the eye holes. And there you go. One of the most famous horror icons in all of cinema created for a buck 50 and just a few modifications. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's unbelievable how how things turn out turn out that way. And. It's uh, what I love about about that mask is I feel like it perfectly accompanies what Michael Myers is all about. Uh, Dr. Loomis's whole speech to to bracket about what Michael is, you know, this six year old child with blank, pale, emotionless face, blackest eyes, the devil's eyes you know, no, has absolutely no concept of right or wrong, good or evil, no appreciation of life or death, just this pure manifestation of evil. Okay. So then hence the shape, right? Yes. I I would say probably the best comparison I can make is how Kyle Reese describes the Terminator in, uh, in the first film. It can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, and it will not stop until you are dead. And, and I think with the, with the mask itself being so blank and, you know, void of emotion or thought, it's, it it just goes along with it perfectly. And Mm -hmm. Halloween is definitely one of those lightning in a bottle movies where just all the right people came together at just the right time. They had the right script. They had the right structure, the right cinematographer, which we'll definitely talk about the cinematography. Dean Cundy, one of the best out there. And they all just came together with what limited resources they had and just created this marvel. And as much as I'm going to praise this movie, like I, I do have a, you know, I do have a couple faults, but it doesn't detract from what the movie is as a whole to me. And well, let's, if that's the case, then, um, you brought up, you know, six year old Michael Myers. I wanted to briefly touch upon that opening. Scene. Yes. So this opening scene is one of, uh, 
I think it was this either the second or the third uh, use of the. It, I don't think it was. I don't think it was the Steadicam specifically. Uh, I think there was a different name for it because it was such a new, uh, such a new tool. I think the. I know it was operated by the guy who invented it. I wish I could remember his name. Right, uh, right. But it, but it was. Uh, he he used it on Rocky. Uh, you know, for uh, for the you know running up the stairs scene, and I think it was used for one other movie. I just don't remember it off the top of my head. And that opening scene is one of the best in all of horror. I absolutely, especially if you go into it, because often when I watch movies like this that have such uh, have such a reputation and have such high praise. I tried to view them as if I was a member of the audience when it, when it first came out and you just go into it stone cold. You don't know what to expect and it's just playing out in front of you. So in nine, so imagine you're it's, it's 1978 and you go see this movie called Halloween and you spend the first five minutes following this POV shot and you just know that it's, stalking this this girl and you have this eerie music that starts to creep in at some point you see this knife being picked up so you know this person has has uh, bad intentions uh obviously is trying to stay out of out of sight out of mind and once uh, once her boyfriend leaves quietly goes up up the stairs take taking taking their sweet time just letting the momentum and tension build as much as possible then he walks. He walks in as she's br- brushing her hair, and the way she says, "Michael," obviously, she knows who this is. And then, without hesitation, just starts stabbing, stabbing, stabbing. Comes out of nowhere, and it's uh, the scene goes on for just long enough to let you take in what just happened, and it kind of takes you off guard. Like, oh wow, like I, I, I didn't, I didn't really expect that. And then, then goes outside then this adult come comes up and says michael pulls off the mask and then you see this was committed by a kid and that alone is fucking disturbing i would say the closest equivalent to a kid committing horrible acts is probably the omen the omen yeah i was gonna which, say the same thing. yeah which was you know uh released two years prior but even then, it uh, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but it's uh, like the horrible acts in the Omen are definitely committed by Damien, but it they're done in a way where he's still trying to hide it, and you know that's creepy in its own right. But to have to have a kid just for no reason, no explanation. No motivation, just kill their older sibling like that. That's infinitely scarier because that could happen. And I'm sure that I'm sure something like that has happened at some point. And it's yeah, it's, you know, yes, say what you will about, you know, the acting from the older sister or anything like that. And it doesn't fucking matter because what matters is how that scene is crafted 
how it builds the suspense and how it just immediately establishes that this character of Michael Myers is pure evil. Well, that kind of separates Michael from other classics of like horror and, and the slasher genres. Like <clears throat> obviously Freddy Krueger burnt victim, um, well burnt killer of, uh, and a perpetrator of uh, child, child uh, abuse or whatnot. Um, he's comes back and hunts, hunts like his victims in his sleep or in their sleep. Um, Jason Voorhees, uh, like a, a weird zombified killer who um, kills everyone who has sex and, uh, <laughs> and like just kills them on Camp Crystal Lake because of the way that he was treated and whatnot. Um, what separates them is that Michael, yes, Michael is pure evil, but he's also just human. You know, he has no special attributes other than the fact that he is a psychotic, purely evil uh, man who really has no, um, who really has no like intentions. His only intention is to kill anything or anyone in his path. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I think that's more terrifying because someone like Michael Myers is more likely than a Jason Voorhees or a Freddy Krueger. Um, maybe well, not, maybe not so much the whole mass thing or whatnot, but I think the idea still stands. So I would, the only thing I would add on to that is based off the ending. Is he actually human? Yeah, that is the, that is the question, isn't it? But I guess if we're going to get there, then why don't we talk about the other cast members in this? Obviously, you know, not just Donald Pleasance as Dr. Loomis. Um, and of course, um, Nick Castle, uh, who plays Michael. Um, by the way, Nick Castle is also a fellow screenwriter and uh, did most of the stunts for did most of the mast portions for Michael. Um, at one point, Michael does get his mask taken off towards the end. It's clearly not him, but the point is, is it's my it is Nick Castle because he is a very tall man. From what, did, did you meet uh, Nick Castle by any chance? I feel like you did. I did not meet Nick Castle. I've met uh, I've met George P. Wilbur, who played Michael in Halloween four and six, and most recently Don Shanks, who played him in five. Like both extremely nice guys. But the funny, I I love bringing this up. Guess what? Guess what Nick Castle directed? Oh, God. Lo oh, no, no, don't tell me. Lost Starfighter, right? He did He did that, but also Dennis the Menace. Oh, really? <laughs> Michael Myers directed Dennis the Menace with Walter Matthau. <laughs> which I, I grew up on that movie. So when I found, when I I found that out, that just fucked with my head in, in countless ways. <laughs> And of course, let's not forget Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Forever the Scream Queen. Um, so I remember um, seeing her in person. So long story short, um, by the way, we're going to be talking about the 2018 Halloween movie as well. But um, at a panel, so I was at San Diego Comic-Con, believe it or not, in Hall H. Sorry, I'm bragging, but... 
Um, I was in there because I got dragged into Hall H, believe it or not. I, I kind of didn't want to sit in there, but it was a great experience. So one of the panels I saw on that Friday of 2018 was seeing um, the Halloween 2018 panel. And that was great. Um, and then something amazing happened. So like, obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis is there. Um, she's there with uh, Dan Green. Is it Dan Green? Is David, that his Gordon, name? David Gordon Green. That's right. Yeah. Who runs Blumhouse Pictures? Who? who who did oh, that, that, the remake? That, that's Jason Blum. Oh yeah, Jason Blum. Oh fuck me! In the... <laughs> I really got my names mixed up. But the point is, so Jamie Lee Curtis was taking questions from the audience. Well, basically, the panel was taking questions from the audience, and this one guy comes up and it's like it's not really a question. He he lets her know that like uh, apparently this the guy who asked the question apparently said or we're speaking said that like he was in a very scary situation once where like it looked like a house intruder was going to come in. And he said, he literally thought to himself, what would Laurie Strode do? And because of that, it saved his life. And it, and he got and he was speaking to Jamie Lee Curtis and Jamie Lee Curtis gets up from the chair, walks down the stage and just embraces him. And That's that is cool. That is such a heartfelt moment. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that news didn't like leak. Um, out of yeah, is there, that year is there footage of that? Because I'd I'd love to see I'm that. I'm pretty sure there is. I I just remember that like that was a huge moment in Hall H. It was like Jamie Lee Curtis. Let me see. I'll have to look it up on YouTube later. But like, um, let me see Comic Con. But yeah, no, dude, that was that was a massive. Oh yeah, I found it. It's right there for me to. See. I'll send you a link later. I think Sweet. you'll I think you'll really appreciate it. But but yeah, no, she is the original Scream Queen. Um, and she is, I think she's kind of the first to establish. So when I went to, when I was taking advanced film theory, um, we, Halloween was the movie we discussed in terms of like slasher films. And it's the movie we watched. And, you know, it really helps set the trip. Like, you know, all they're like all those, all the, you know, like all those girls who mostly die because they're busy having sex or whatnot. Michael's knife is basically a, a, a phallic symbol uh, or whatnot. And what Laurie Strode represents is the final girl who is able to defeat the villain and get away and escape. Um, who really like, she's innocent, doesn't have sex. She's like, and, and it's true. Like, you know, Laurie, Laurie's not like having sex or thinking about sex or, you know, thinking about hanging out with her friends she's babysitting like for the night and uh yeah yeah she's got her what her brother and like no it, she's got her sister and um her and her like younger uh, and the boy she's babysitting or whatnot i think it's been a moment but like the point is is like you know she's protecting the kids she serves as that like sort of innocence if you will which is really really unique um yeah and would, you know it had never really been done before and so she really serves as like well so she really uh, is the final girl for the reason yeah well so the final girl final girl trope did definitely did not start with jamie lee curtis but her uh the way she accompanied that role definitely uh popular uh popularized it on such a grand scale because you know you had uh, so I would say I would actually say 
the 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 first Scream Queen, I would I would argue is a Marilyn Burns from a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When did that one come out? 73? 74. Ah. And, really? Uh, so and four we, years prior. Okay. Four years prior. And uh, and actually, if you watch the original Black Christmas, uh, I think also from 74, you can definitely see uh, you can definitely see various ways of how Carpenter was influenced by Halloween mm-hmm. uh, or by, by that film to make Halloween. Like, you know, the first shot of Black Christmas is is the POV of a is the POV of the killer stalking, uh, stalking uh, their victims. And so it's uh, and actually, I think Halloween got some criticism for that, you know, saying like, Oh, you just ripped off black Christmas. But, uh, but Bob Clark, uh, Bob Clark himself, you know, the director of black Christmas said like, no, 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 he didn't. He didn't, you know, cause they, they, uh, I think he, he knew Carpenter at the time and, uh, you know, just kind of laid that all, all to rest. And, so it's uh, even though Halloween is the film that's the little movie that could just blew up as much as it did and popularized the slasher genre. You know, this is at the very end of the 80s and then our uh, end of the 70s. And then once you got into the 80s, that's when pretty much every that's when the slasher genre really took off. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, like that's when slasher movies were like were like how superhero movies are, where it's like fucking hell, like feel like there's there's one every other weekend Mm -hmm. and it uh yeah so if um so definitely like jimmy lee curse deserves all the all the praise for for what she did for the genre but uh definitely like you know those uh those uh previous films and actresses definitely should not be should not be overshadowed right so you know so like you said she's not the first but she is definitely the one who really defined exactly what the final girl, I guess, trope is, I guess. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Well, so, uh, so, sense. so one thing I, uh, oh, and uh, uh, before we move on, uh, pretty sure there's a certain gal in this movie who's uh, kind of your BFF. <laughs> okay, so one of her best friends is Linda Van Der Klock, who's played by PJ Souls. Um, I, I fucking knew you're going to bring this up. So, totally. all right. So long story short, uh, I'm not going to say which major retail, uh, company I work for, but essentially one day I'm like, uh, at the guest services desk and I'm like helping uh, process orders for order pickup. This short blonde woman, older blonde woman walks in and she's like, I have an order ready for pickup. And she's really chipper. She's really cool. She seems nice. So I'm just like, um, all right, cool. And she has her barcode ready. So I scan it and I'm like, are you really the PJ souls? And he's like, I'm the PJ souls. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, wow. Okay. This is, this is, uh, this is how I expected the day to go. Yeah, it is. No, like this day just got actually pretty cool. So I'm just like, Hey, look, I, I'm sure you get this a lot, but like, um, my best friend, He's a major Halloween fan, loves the franchise. I mean, like, loved the first film. He's like, hey, you want to take a selfie? It's like, fuck yeah, I do. <laughs> so we, we quickly took a selfie. I took it. I wasn't supposed to. Um, but like, hey, it was a once in a lifetime moment. And uh, yeah, I, I saved the selfie. And then like, I texted you later that day. It's like, I met PJ Souls later today. And you're like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> 
so no she's not my bff but it's just i did she did befriend me on facebook i will say this much which is pretty cool so um totally. for a while for a while her facebook profile picture so like so just to get you an idea unfortunately linda dies in the movie but um she it's like the way the way her facebook profile picture is it's um a lego version of what linda looks like at the at like towards right before she's killed let's put it that way um and i'm like oh that's awesome and i showed you a picture of it and you're like oh yeah that dude that's pretty fucking awesome uh yeah now pj like um if you're listening to this um we'd love to talk to you at some point um about your experience on halloween and uh from what i understand um yeah no we'd love to talk to you at some point um but totally yeah, no. Uh, and thanks for uh, thanks for uh, letting me take the picture with you. I, it was really cool. I got to share with him and he's like, fuck you. <laughs> God damn it. I knew you're going to bring this up. By I way, wasn't going to say anything. By the way, PJ, loved Ian Stripes. Anyway. Uh, oh, is, he in, is she in Stripes? Yeah, yeah she, she's also in Carrie. Oh, it's been a long time since I've seen at least stripes. I remember it's been a moment since I've seen Carrie, but a long time since I've seen stripes. Um, so, so something that I definitely want to uh, touch on is the cinematography. Oh yeah. Dean Cundy, baby go out for it. Dean motherfucking Cundy. So what this man was able to bring to the look of Halloween is pretty incredible. He managed to take this really low budget film and, just through the lenses he was using and the way that he framed all of the shots just made it look like, like it had triple the budget of what it actually had. And when it comes like the way that he works with, with the lighting, the way, uh, you know, just the one, one image that always sticks out to me is, you know, uh, when, uh, when little Tommy Doyle is, you know, peeking through the blinds while Lori's on the phone and then, Michael is just sitting in the dark in front of the house, just standing there. And you have trick-or-treaters running in the uh, closer to the foreground. Just the way it's lit, the way it's framed up, it looks beautiful. And it's creepy as hell, but it's also beautiful in a way. And, you know, other shots that I, I adore is, uh, you know, after, you know, we're, we're going to be all over the place with this, with this fucking thing, if you haven't already noticed. Uh, but towards the end, uh, before the final chase kicks off, the way that the light slow after Lori sees, you know, discovers all of her friends killed, and you know she's kind of standing in the hallway crying. Just the way the light slowly is brought in to to reveal Michael's white face emerging from the darkness. Shit's creepy, man. That's really fucking creepy, mm-hmm. and. It, uh, yeah, there, I I don't have a single bad thing to say about the cinematography. Like, there is one shot I actually do like, uh, which one that you're, so it's the one where Lori is, she's, what, has she gotten out of the shower or whatnot? Or is, um, like she's doing her homework and like, she notices there's someone looking out, looking from downstairs outside and she's just looking at it very She's looking outside very like cautiously and you can see there is Michael standing there and then she looks again and he's not there. And like, that's an eerie feeling of like, 
someone is clearly stalking her. Oh um, yeah. And I I think that's I think what makes this movie so special in a way is is a, it's not a gore fest. That it, was a surprising thing too. Yeah, when I first watched it, like you would think that um you know when when Linda gets stabbed repeatedly by Michael like you think there'd be like blood all over the place and whatnot. No, like this is for an R rated horror slasher film like this. There is little to almost no blood in this movie. And that was quite a surprise. Yeah, it, was would... it a budget thing or would they, were they just trying to do no, more? No, the, uh, the, the priority was building the suspense and atmosphere. And that is the right way to go folks, by the way. <laughs> It kind of depends on on the movie itself, but yeah, okay, it's, uh, it, it definitely is what helped uh, helped Halloween stand out from from the crowd. And it's uh, I think part of the genius of it is in its simplicity, you know, because I feel like a lot of kids, you know, grew up hearing something about a local legend. You know, there was, uh, you know, something bad happened nearby where they live and all these stories are told about them. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's, you know, complete bullshit. Sometimes it's a little, little bit of both. And Michael Myers became that local legend, you know, the, the boogeyman. And he, uh, but it doesn't get much more complicated than that. Like you see the horrible act that he committed as a child, but then, you know, he, he escapes from from the asylum and just because you know Lori was in the wrong place at the wrong time michael says i'm going i'm coming i'm coming for her and yeah that's pretty much it like i mean yeah like there's there's a little more to it but it's as simple as it gets and you know there's not too many locations as the as the movie progresses and it's it revels in in all of its strongest aspects, you know, which is the the cinematography, the use of lighting, and this movie. I would say similar to something like Jaws or Star Wars, it would not be the iconic staple without that music. Well, I was going to bring that up for I was going to bring that up because you know Carpenter, like I said earlier. He did the score for pretty much all of his movies. Halloween is no exception. Um, what I love about Halloween, obviously the main theme is a classic, but what's really classic is when that main theme is accompanying the opening credits of the movie. It's just a simple shot of a jack-o'-lantern and um, they just, they, is it, they zoom in slowly on the jack-o'-lantern throughout the credits and, uh, as you hear that haunting like theme, by the way, so the music, so the music itself, very piano esque, also, uh, so a lot of keyboards and also a lot of synth. Yeah. A lot of synth. And, uh, it's a very, it's very simple. It's not, um, it's not like over the top or anything, but the moment you hear it, you're just like, Oh yeah, this is Halloween. Um, like, so, or, so I think it was yesterday actually, I was like helping a guest with a return and I'm hearing that one part of Halloween where it's like, Ta-da! um, God, I, I can't, I can't quickly, I can't play it actually. Otherwise, uh, 
copyrights will come and knock in. But like, I think Jeff might know the one I'm talking about if I played it later for him. But like, it's kind of like when they do a reveal or whatnot, or I, again, I need to play the music for it. But like, um, but yeah, it's a very simple. It's like, dun, dun, dun. but like, you know, some of the examples like dun, 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 dun. very simplistic in its music. Oh, um, yeah. And like, especially with uh, like not even just the main theme, just like that, that calm little little melody of, uh, you know, it's uh, and actually what I kind of like is how that music is repurposed to fit different tones. You know, the first time it's uh, first time it's used it, uh, you know, it's right after Michael escapes from the asylum and uh, and then it just opens on the shots of suburbia and, you know, it's showing the leaves blowing and the kids walking to school. And, you know, that's when you're introduced to Lori and, uh, you know, that music is just sustained until you, until they get to the Myers house. And mm-hmm. the second time that, uh, uh, that music is prominently featured is when Lori is going back across the street to see what the hell is going on. You know, she's, you know, she's lost contact with, with her friends. She feels like something's off. And so it, uh, so it starts off kind of, kind of like a mellow vibe. And then now it's being used to really give off the creepiest fuck atmosphere in that in the house that Michael just slaughtered her friends in, and I think that that's what makes it so unique is the way it's kind of it has this multi purpose that you can kind of just drop it at almost any point in the movie. I wouldn't say every point, but you know multiple, and it'll get the job done in creating uh, in creating the the tone and. By the way, I actually kind of going back to what uh, one of the, one of the shots that always stuck out to me is uh, as soon as uh, Loomis and uh, the nurse are uh, are driving to the gates of the uh, to the gates of Smith's Grove, the way with the rain, the thunder and uh, booming in the background, and you just see all the patients just in in their gowns like in the distance, just wandering something about that image is so fucking creepy to me. And the way, uh, the way the, the music kicks in the moment that reveal happens, like it's, it's beautiful in its atmosphere. It's creepy in just the sheer look and context of the scene. Carpenter's music just amplifies how fucking creepy the, the whole situation is. It's, it's a wonderfully crafted scene. Yeah, no, I agree. Cause then, cause then Loomis realizes, no. <laughs> cause he realizes Michael got it, has gone out. It's like, we need to follow him now, or we need to find him now because, you know, you know, as you learn throughout the film, as you learn, you know, as Jeff described earlier, like Dr. Loomis spent pretty much a majority of Michael's life with him and trying to study him and trying to rehabilitate him and realizing, there's no saving Michael because Michael is just pure evil. And so when he realizes that Michael basically killed someone, killed someone and then escaped Smith's Grove, he's like, no. <laughs> and the evil realizes, is gone. The evil is gone. <laughs> By the way, uh, 
one little one little scene that I I didn't catch this until uh, probably just a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, I was just mostly listening to the dialogue. That uh, that scene where uh, Annie and Lori are you know driving over to the houses that they're babysitting at, and you know Annie pulls out uh, pulls out a joint, and you know they they start puff puff passing, and there's uh, there's music playing on the radio, and uh, the songs begin to change, and then the fucking moment that the car Michael stole turns in and starts following them. Blue Oyster Colts Don't Fear the Reaper starts playing. And I'm like, I'm like, God, that is that's wonderful. That's fucking <laughs> wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, go back, uh yeah, go back and watch the scene and just the way it syncs up. It's uh, it's so wonderfully done. Oh, and that's uh, awesome. And yeah, and actually one character I want to briefly mention, uh Charles Cyphers, who plays uh plays Sheriff Brackett. Uh, you know, I, I think he's great in this movie. He's a John Carpenter regular. I think he's in Escape from New York, and I know he's a, he's in The Fog. The Fog is great, by the way. Definitely check that out. Uh, I think he retired from semi-retired from acting in I want to say the mid to late two thousands, mm-hmm. but he's reprising the role of Brackett in Halloween Kills. I was about to bring that up. I was just looking it up now. I was like, oh, really? He's going to come back? Yeah, and he's so- like. 82 apparently he is so i'm so honestly like i'm one of those i'm one of those guys that you know like like i I think it's kind of cool as uh when you know like when there's like a big actor that comes back to uh to an iconic role they played a long time ago but honestly i get more i tend to get more excited when these cool character actors get the opportunity to be a part Shine, of a really yeah to be a part of a big production and you know have their chance in the in the limelight you know like i like i'd say a big example is martin cove being uh being in cobra kai you know dude you know obviously dude you know we know him as john crease but you know for probably a couple decades you know lots of schlocky b movies like horror movies low budget action movies so he was also in rambo first blood part two yeah, yeah, I think that was right around the same time uh, Karate Kid Two came out, and you know, just kind of one of those actors that you know was consistently working, but you know, just kind of faded into the background. But then Cobra Kai comes out and becomes this huge sensation, and now Martin Cove is on fucking Dancing with the Stars. Oh God, that is like <laughs> God. The moment you get on Dancing with the Stars, that means you are fucking desperate. I, I hate that series so fucking much. <laughs> I'm not hey, kidding. It's a piece don't, of shit don't, don't, series. Don't, don't talk shit about Martin Cove, man. I'm not talking shit about Martin Cove. I'm talking about the show itself. Hey, my boy Frankie <sighs> Muniz was on there. Yeah, he probably forgot later that he was going to be on the show. <laughs> that he was on the show. Oh, you know, he neat. is with his memory. Yeah, I, I got the fucking joke. <laughs> you dick. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, but yeah, so anyway... With uh, so kind of as uh as the, or actually yeah, so kind of something else I thought was always kind of kind of funny. Uh, the uh one of the movies that uh, uh that the kids are watching is the the thing from another world, which mm. John Carpenter would remake a few years later. You know, because he he was a huge fan of that movie, and it's it, it's always. I don't know. I always thought that was kind of interesting. And the, uh, 
in uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, which I I want to like that movie, but it's Rob Zombie's dialogue is just so fucking god awful that it's it's hard to. But he uh for for both those uh for, in that movie he brings back both the tribute John Carpenter made for uh a thing from another world. Also brings back the Blue Oyster Cult Don't Fear the Reaper song. Does he really? <laughs> he does. He does. And it's uh it's weird. Like it's this it's like a tribute within a tribute. It it's fucking weird. I've never really seen that done anywhere else, but you know, hey, there you go. Uh, um to quote this is probably what John Carpenter said to everyone else who complained about Blue Oyster Cult. It's going to be the same line from the thing where he's like, yeah, well, fuck you too. That's just me, though. <laughs> so I guess to close out, I wanted to kind of bring a po- bring apart. By the way, so we definitely highly recommend the movie. Um, but there's something I wanted to bring up real quick that I thought was interesting. So um, obviously the movie was well received, um, but apparently one of its biggest supporters in terms of uh, critics Roger Ebert. And the reason yep. I say that is because he from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I see here. But from what I understand, Roger Ebert did not like slasher films. He wasn't the biggest horror film. And yet, as Jeff said, he gave it four full stars and actually recommended it as one of his top 10 films of 1978. Um, I mean, I see Gene, Gene Siskel gave it three and a half out of four and uh, called it beautifully made. And, uh, and it works because director Carpenter knows how to shock while making a smile. But yeah, no, I, I thought that was fascinating that Roger Ebert, you know, really actually surprisingly loved the movie so much. Um, and like, I mean, obviously that says a lot given, um, given the talent that's on screen. Cause obviously Carpenter really utilizes that $300,000 budget to make it look like, to really make it give it that feel or whatnot. I mean, I was, yeah, very, very surprised um, that he made a movie so good. Even Roger Ebert was like, yeah, man, this is fucking great. Um, Yeah. Which is honestly, uh, yeah. Cause if you listen to, you know, any of his reviews through for, you know, prominent slasher movies throughout the eighties, he just fucking tears them apart. One of the funniest ones I've seen is uh, is his review for Friday the Thirteenth: The Final Chapter. It's <laughs> fucking hilarious. Like they they totally missed the point of the movie, but to to hear them be so over dramatic about it, about their hatred for it, it's really entertaining to listen to. Uh, but with um, yeah, one more thing I really want to touch on is the the ending, or ultimately the the whole climax of the movie. It's it's one of the best the chase- final face down. Yeah, it's one of the best chase scenes in all of horror. It's beautifully edited. It's scary. It's intense. John Carpenter's music is so well incorporated. You know, the uh, the moment that Michael you know slashes at her arm, she falls down the stairs and then that done, 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 done and just kicks off from there. And that creepy ass shot of Michael you know, walking into frame at the, at the top of the stairs as he's just, you know, walking down towards her and he's always just like just inches away and the way it's edited, it feels like he's just, just fucking on the verge of just grabbing her and killing her. And 
ah, oh, it's so well done. And the way Lori, you know, runs out and like screaming for help. And by the way, those neighbors are fucking assholes for not letting her yeah. in. By the way, I do like that. I do like those shots of like where she gets to the door. Then you and it cuts back to like um, a, a part of the a part of the movie where like in the distance you can see Michael just just calmly walking towards slowly, her, slowly, yeah. slowly coming closer and closer. It's oh, it's, it's so well done, and uh, and then uh, then you know Michael inevitably gets inside the house. You know, tries stabbing her, misses. And then, you know, Lori sticks him with uh, uh, a coat hanger, right? Oh, no, it was uh, uh, the, sh- the shit you use for, for knitting. Ah, uh, uh, okay. I thought it was a coat hanger for whatever reason. Second time. Uh, yeah, when, yeah, w- yeah, when she's in the closet. So this is, where, uh, this is where questionable decisions are made. But, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter. You never really mentioned your criticisms for uh, Halloween. Yeah, Why don't yeah you so. About it? There's a, it's kind of a problem with all movies of this category where, you know, there's, there's the lull moments, characters just saying shit that has absolutely no impact on the plot. Uh, it's just filler. You know, I get it's there to establish the, the relationship between, uh, between all the main girls, but they don't, aside from Laurie, they don't have anything interesting to say or do really. And uh-huh. the dialogue isn't very good. The acting is a little off, but you know, it, it is what it is. It's whatever, like it could have been so much worse. And, uh, yeah, I would say the only, like the moment that always has me just like yelling, what the fuck are you doing? Is, uh, you know, first time, you know, Lori, you know, stabs Michael in the neck, he's down for the count. And, you know, she, she drops, a, uh, you know, has the knife in her hand, but you know, she drops it. And then, you know, I figured, yeah, you know, it's, you know, she, she assumes he's dead, doesn't really know what he is. So I, I can let that slide. But then once uh, once Lori uh, meets up with the kids at the top of the stairs and says, uh, you know, like, OK, you know, you know, go to the neighbor's house, call the cops, tell them to get the fuck over here. And then Michael uh, comes comes up the stairs and uh, then that infamous closet scene happens, which, by the way, very well done scene. Very, very well done. The way uh, Michael just slowly enters the enters the bedroom, just starts punching through the fucking closet, and Jamie Lee Curtis does, does a great job at selling uh, selling the fear in her face. Uh, so pokes him in the eye with uh, with a coat hanger, stabs him stabs him in the gut, and then you know down for the count again, and then drops the fucking knife again. <laughs> I'm like, no, god damn it, Lori. And uh but you know, those are ultimately nitpicks. Like it doesn't compromise the movie as, as a whole. You know, it's it'd be unfair just to like purely suck this movie's dick without without like mentioning a couple of the rough spots because every every movie, no matter how good it is, like it it has always gonna have a rough spot here and there. Yeah, you're right. And uh but so then, you know, so the kids kids run out screaming, you know. Uh, running to the neighbor's house and that gets the attention of Loomis. And as soon as he, you know, so the moment that he runs upstairs, you know, he's Michael's, uh, by the way, that shot of Lori sitting, uh, sitting down on the floor. And then Michael just in one clean motion sits back up and just shifts his head towards her. That image is fucking terrifying to me. 
and it, it's so well ugh, it's fucking creepy man and you know he starts strangling her and then Loomis comes in to the rescue shoots him and you know you get the slight face reveal and then just shoots him five more times and then he falls over the balcony and Michael uh, or you know Lori asks like you know was that the boogeyman and you know Loomis says as a matter of fact it was and he's slowly walks towards the front of the balcony and Michael's gone. And the look on Loomis's face sends chills down my spine where that's where he truly realizes this, this thing is not human. And, you know, the way Lori starts crying and the way that you just hear the breathing of the mask as the music yeah. starts starts rolling in and it's just showing all the locations that, that were seen throughout throughout the film and how it just kind of shows Michael could be anywhere and the way it ends on that final shot of the house as the breathing starts to echo. Oh it it even the first time I saw that this movie, that was the scariest part for me. Like that, the way that was done always stuck with me. I think it's one of the creepiest, I think it's one of the best endings in all of horror. And honestly, if this was, if this just was just a one-off and this was the only, you know, there was never another Halloween movie afterward, I think, I still, I think we would still be talking about it with this exact same, you know, historical appreciation for, for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because the all the sequels that followed after, you know, uh, I have a soft spot for all of them, and and they all have their own unique appeal. But when it comes to just looking at this as an individual piece, because it's hard to look at it purely from purely as its own isolated thing, just because, you know, it's been blown up, blown up into, into this franchise that's been going on for almost half a century, which is fucking crazy to think about, but it's true. And it all started with this little independent, independent film that, you know, like I said, the right people at the right time came together to create something special and they truly, and they sure did. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those films that will, as time goes on, it'll be shown to the next generation of enthusiastic horror fans. Or, I mean, if you're just a fan of film in general, this is one of those movies that I would absolutely deem essential because there's so much great craftsmanship behind it. And I think it would just serve as an inspiring example of what you, you could do with very little money. And it, uh, yeah, the fact that, you know, this low of a budget on that type of a shooting schedule and they still managed to churn out a horror masterpiece. So if you haven't seen John Carpenter's Halloween, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, uh, for me, if you have nothing going on on Halloween night, right when the sun starts to set, pop this movie in and you'll be like, you'll, 
you'll be accompanied by the sound of trick-or-treaters outside. Uh, and then by the time the evening rolls around, you'll kind of, it'll start to end right when you hear Michael's breathing at the, uh, kind of towards, towards the end. And uh, I've done that before. And it, uh, it makes, it makes for a unique experience for sure. So well, yeah, if you've never seen it for the love of God, go, go check it out. Like if you're one of those, eh, I don't want to watch it cause it's an old movie. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> don't, don't talk to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in complete agreement with Jeff. I think that Halloween is a true classic. Um, it's one of the best slasher films made. It's one of the best horror films ever made. And, you know, for a small budget of that caliber to truly make that effective of a film, um, it's an achievement. Um, yeah, I really have nothing else to say. But yeah, I agree with Jeff wholeheartedly. Please check out the original Halloween and um, yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, everyone check out Halloween. I agree with Jeff wholeheartedly, but all right. Well, that is the end of the first installment of horror month. So be back next time when we come back for another installment of horror month. Um, um, do we want to say what it is or do we want? No, Let's make it a surprise. <laughs> That's the whole point of this month now, shouldn't it be? I don't know why I'm talking creepily like that, but okay. Um, <laughs> well, hey, I'll just end by saying this. It is Halloween, and everyone's entitled to one good scare. Yes, that is true. Um, all right, well then, that's going to be it for this installment, folks. So please be sure to follow us on the Instagram page at tnapcast that's t-n-a-a-p-c-a-s-t be sure to subscribe to the youtube channel like and comment on the videos there leave us suggestions for videos in the comment sections as well and uh we're currently only available on spotify and apple podcasts um that's where we that's where you can listen to the shows but all right folks that's gonna do it for another installment of two nerdskis in a podcast for this week and let us see what we've got next in store for horror month all right. With that all being said, this is Eric. I'm Jeff. Beautiful. All right. Stay shiny, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs>